1 Samuel chapter 8, 4 through 9. Before I get into the scripture text here, I'd like to read an article. Just kind of look at what's going on in society today. There's always different things going on. And, and how Christianity as a whole approaches this and what's our viewpoint on some things. This article came out yesterday, June 9th. It was an opinion by Kirsten Powers. And the title is, Americans are depressed and suicidal because something is wrong with our culture. Now, she goes through a lot of things because she had dealt with that. Her father had died, and she went through a lot of anxiety um, and, and depression and different things like that. But there's a study that was released earlier this week. Suicide rates increased 25% nationally, making it a national crisis. I know it's not a fun topic to talk about, but as a church, we shouldn't ignore things like this. We can't just hide around and not talk about difficult things that are going on in our world today. Amen. She, her um, brother-in-law, or her future brother-in-law, John Draper, he's the director of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. He goes through some of the topics there about how this is growing and, and what is going on. I'm going to read a portion of this article. She says, but why are so many more Americans getting to this level of emotional despair than in the past? As journalist Johan Harry wrote in his best-selling book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. The epidemic of depression and despair in the Western world isn't always caused by our brains. It's largely caused by key problems in the way we live. We exist largely disconnected from our extended, extended families, friends, and communities, except in the shallow interactions of social media, because our, we are too busy trying to make it without realizing that once we reach that goal, it won't be enough. In an interview this year, and again, I'm reading through this article, not the whole thing, but just a portion of it. In an interview this year, the comedian and actor Jim Carrey talked about getting to the place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and realizing you are still unhappy. And that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you have accomplished everything you ever dreamt of and more. If only we get that big raise, our new house, or have children, we will finally be happy. But we won't. This is her. She wrote this. This is her words exactly. In fact, as Carrie points out, in many ways, achieving all your goals provides the opposite of fulfillment. It lays bare the truth that there is nothing you can purchase, possess, or achieve that will make you feel fulfilled over the long term. Then she goes on to say, we should acknowledge that something is very wrong. We should stop telling people who yearn for a deeper meaning in life that they have an illness or need a therapy. We should stop telling people who yearn for a deeper meaning in life that they have an illness or need therapy. Instead, we need to help people craft lives that are more meaningful and built on a firmer foundation. These are right from her article than personal success. Now, she doesn't go in and tell you exactly what that is. She just knows that there's something 
that needs to be done. But as a church, we know what that firmer foundation is. We know the hope that we have. Now, I'm not minimalizing this issue. There are real issues. There are real anxiety issues. And I know that firsthand with my mom. There are, there are real mental issues. But as a whole, when you look at someone like Jim Carrey and this week, Kate Spade and Anthony um, Baudet, there are cases of people that have been very successful, but when they get to that point, as Jim Carrey opened up earlier this year, what else is there to do? I've done everything that everyone told me to do. I've done everything I've wanted to do. What is there at this point? Well, we have a God. We serve a God. We have a hope beyond this life. Amen? We have that true foundation. Amen? Praise God. Again, I didn't want to make everyone depressed, but there's a hope. I think we can get, out, we can get a hope out of that um, and know that God is in charge. And that's going to tie in uh, to what I'm going to talk about uh, today. So 1 Samuel 8 verse 4 through 9. Then the elders, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Just so you know, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Um, I think that is a New King James Version. If it's a King James, we're, we'll, we'll just follow along with me. And verse 5, and said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. I'm going to pause right here as I did earlier on the north side and say it's, it's always good to pray. When you're di- dealt with a difficult circumstance, to pause and pray. Pause and pray. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. God's saying this is nothing new, nothing new. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Amen. You may be seated. Up to this point in time, Israel has had quite an extensive history. We can go through step by step going all the way back to Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, I'm not going to go into detail, but you, some, most of us know the story, or all of us do. Jacob had then uh, many sons. Many sons had. No, that's Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. That's fun. I, wow, that came out of nowhere. But uh, so then Jacob, he was, his name was changed to Israel, and then he had uh, a lot of sons. Um, then Joseph was one of his sons, and then Joseph was used of God. This is going to tie in a little bit, the sovereignty of God. Uh, Joseph's brothers threw, uh, sold him into slavery. And then Joseph ends up rising in Egypt and becomes a ruler, and he serves for about 80 years. 
and Israel comes into Egypt. They go into the land. They live uh, with the Egyptians, and then they are multiplied. They, God multiplies them, and they, they're just growing in number, and the Egyptians are now concerned. A new pharaoh arises. He doesn't remember, doesn't remember Joseph at all and starts oppressing them, puts them in slavery, and um, uses them as, as, as labor, forced labor, um, to, keep, to try to keep them from growing, to keep them from taking over Egypt. But God keeps blessing Israel. Now, after that, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. After about 400 or so years in Egypt, Moses leads them out. What's interesting is God is talking to Samuel in the scripture verse. He says, um, since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, they have forsaken me and gone after other gods. If you look at the miraculous signs that God did, the plagues in Egypt, showing himself strong and then delivering them out of Egypt, and then as soon as they're out of Egypt... They go through the Red Sea. The first thing they decide to do is let's complain. Let's wish we were back in slavery. We hate it here, God. Nothing's perfect. This is awful. We don't have food. We don't have water. We anticipated that life would just be just peaceful, no struggle whatsoever. But that wasn't part of God's plan. And so even within one year, they build a golden calf and they start worshiping it. One year after being in slavery, for a couple hundred years or more, and they can't wait. They cannot wait for Moses to come down from the from the mountain from talking with God, and they think that Moses is gone. So they build a golden calf and start worshiping it. Ever since that, they have forsaken God. Then you go into forty years of wandering because they didn't have faith in God, and then you get to a point where they finally get into the promised land. And what do they do? They go through this cycle, not listening to God, of having idols, and then all these surrounding countries oppressing them, and then they cry out to God. Then God sends a judge. The judge rules them for a time, and then the judge passes away, and then they're left to their own devices. And ter- instead of turning to God, they decide, oh, now we're free. We can do whatever we want. And they go through disobedience again. And then they are oppressed. And they cry out to God. And then God sends a judge. And then the judge passes. And we start the whole thing again. It's a cycle. It's a roller coaster. And here, during the life of Samuel, we see the transition of Israel from being ruled by a judge or judges, to being ruled by a human king. They get to this point. And we're over a thousand years now since Abraham. And um, here they see Samuel's growing old, and he's made his sons as judges of Israel. But to the dismay of Samuel and the dismay of the people of Israel is that they were not as faithful, Samuel's sons, as Samuel himself. Instead, they did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. This made the elders of Israel worry, worry about the outcome of the situation when the time comes that Samuel passes. And so what did they do? They demanded a king. The problem with the request of Israel is that they already had a king. 
ever since they had been conceived as a nation. The king was no, no other than God himself. But Israel lacked trust in God as their king. They were so concerned about the future that they ignored what God had already done for them and what he was doing in their life today and what he was going to do in their nation tomorrow. They were so concerned and they lacked trust in the will and sovereignty of God. Israel also had wrong desires and intentions. They compared themselves with the other nations and wanted to be just like them. Comparison is sin. It's as if Israel was saying God hadn't made them, he hadn't placed them, and he hadn't equipped them according to his perfect will. That there was just something off. That it wasn't a sovereign God in charge, but that God was missing something. And that they needed to be like other nations. They wanted a visible human king that they could look upon in all his pomp and glory, a king that would lead them in battle like other nations. They wanted to have that pride. They they wanted to see that king. God never wanted them to be like the other nations. He called them out. He set them apart for himself. They were different, but they didn't see that. They didn't understand that. They didn't fully comprehend the sovereignty of God. So they came up with their own solution. The sovereignty of God. What is the sovereignty of God? Well, the sovereignty of God means that he has total control of all things past, present, and future. Nothing happens that is outside of his knowledge and control. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purpose and through his perfect will and timing. That's the sovereignty of God. There's a famous uh, preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. He preached um, a, uh, a message called Divine Sovereignties. Charles Spurgeon preached in the 1800s. And this is a quote from his sermon. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit on that throne, submitting to God's kingship. Submitting to God, king, God's kingship. Now, I won't go through Spurgeon's message, but in short, he talks about and goes into depth what that entails for us today. For example, when we look at us, ourselves, each of us, we didn't choose where we were born. We didn't have a choice into who our parents were. We didn't have a say in how we were raised or how we will be raised. We were just brought into the world. We didn't even get a choice to say, hey, I want to be born or I don't. That choice wasn't yours. We didn't get to choose whether we had health 
or that we would be sick, whether we'd have eyesight or we would be deaf or paralyzed. These are things that were outside of our control. We don't choose whether we have the intelligence to grasp and comprehend the complexities of creation or instead lack the capacity to understand even the simplest things. We don't control what kind of intelligence God has given us. We don't choose whether we come into this world as royalty. I'm kind of disappointed, I know. Or into slavery. We don't get that choice. We don't choose whether we are multi-talented or have a few talents. None of us. We didn't go on the computer and design ourselves. You know, I play computer games occasionally. I play the, this is a random, random thought, another random thought. I play um, Madden NFL 2008 because it was the last PC version of the game. And so they have a community that is still supporting. I, I know you, you're going to have to deal with me for, for a few minutes here. They have a community that's modded the game so that it's, it's still current. They've made some adjustments. And so you can create your own player and make him however you want, right? I mean, you can make a superstar player and name him Tim Vaca. Number one superstar, seven foot one. Runs a four, 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 two, something like that. It's incredible, this guy. You've got to meet him. Anyway, anyway, we don't get that choice. Anyway. We don't get that choice. We cannot design ourselves and determine what is going to be the outcome. That's part of God's sovereign plan. Amen? He has control. He knows what he's doing. Now, side note, just a side note here. With this understanding, we know that these gifts come from God, so we cannot boast, nor can we complain. We have no control over what has been given or not given to us. So what should our response be? We should bless God no matter what, understanding that he is sovereign and can do as he please. He can do as he please, however he pleases, whenever he pleases. Whatever we're given, we should use for the glory of God That is our obligation. Now, Spurgeon goes through it in the first part of his message. He talks about, on the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by the world. The world will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop and create the beautiful world that we see, the universe and everything that's in it. They will allow him to sustain the earth. They will allow him to control the heavens and rule the waves of the oceans. They will allow him to bless them with life and strength. But when God ascends his throne to rightfully reign, and stand behind his word and the truth of his word and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks without consulting us in the matter, then the world fights back and rejects his reign. God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with a scepter in his hand 
and his crown upon his head. His head. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne who we trust. It is God upon his throne of whom we worship. Praise God. Submitting to God's kingship. Amen. Submitting to God's kingship. How does this connection made here? All right, we can get these truths in our head, right? We can understand those things in an intellectual way to some degree. As pastor preached last Sunday, don't let your head get in the way of your heart. We can understand these things here. And a lot of times, that's where we feel comfortable. Okay, it makes sense. I believe God's sovereign. I'm, I'm cool with that. Understand that. Now I'm just going to go my own way. God's in charge. But until we let it get to this point, we're missing out on a lot. We have to apply this truth not just to our minds, but also to our hearts. If we just put it in our minds without letting it get to our heart, we might know that God's sovereignty is sweet, but we'll never taste that sweetness if we don't let it get to our heart. You can go to class and study all you want, whatever material, but if all you do is put it in your mind and don't apply what you learn, you didn't really learn at all. God's sovereignty. How does this apply to us today? How can we ensure that we are allowing God to be the sovereign king in our lives? How can we keep from comparing ourselves to others and instead look to him as our ultimate satisfaction? How can we let him reign in us, thereby accepting his reign in our life? Well, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. I don't want to leave you hanging. I want to provide a some thoughts here on how we can submit our lives to God's kingship. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, and I'm going to stay a little while on each verse here, so stick with me on that. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul, again, Paul is the writer of this epistle or this letter to the church in Colossians. And he's, he's uh, apparently he had actually never visited this church, but they were always in his mind and he never ceased to pray for them. But if you'll look throughout the epistle of Colossians, he talks about them being filled with the knowledge of his will. Again, this is a church in Colossians, but he's admonishing them and he's telling them throughout the epistle that you are not you're not being filled with the knowledge of God, and you need to. So my question is, do you have knowledge of his will? Do you have knowledge of Christ our King and his will in your life? Spiritual ignorance is the constant source of error, instability, and sorrow. We must have sound knowledge of the things of God. Sound knowledge of the things of God. To know God and what he requires of us is our first responsibility. So what does that mean? You have to get in the word of God. How else are you going to find out what God has planned for you and what his will is for you unless you get into the word of God? Do you have knowledge of his will? 
Verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. I preached a sermon about living worthily. Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Being what? Being fruitful in every good work and increasing, again, here he goes again, increasing in the knowledge of God. Not decreasing, not staying stagnant, increasing. So my question to you today, are your hands bearing godly fruit? When it comes to knowing and following God's will, we tend to overthink the who and the where and the how rather than the what of God's will. What is the purpose of God's will in my life? Following God's will is a call to bear fruit in every good work. You will know the tree by its fruit. Amen? When you see an orange tree, you know it's an orange tree by the oranges that are growing on it. Maybe you could tell by the leaves. I wouldn't be able to. I'd have to see the actual fruit on the tree. But if someone were to evaluate your life today, would they know you're a Christian by your fruit? When you go into work, I'm not saying you're going to be happy every day, but the way you approach life, the way you behave yourself, how do you handle those? Do you handle it in a way that's Christ-like? Are your hands bearing godly fruit? If our hands are bearing no fruit for the king, then we aren't letting him sit on the throne in our lives. Again, coming back to this thought, is your mind growing in the knowledge of God? God is royal, majestic. He has so much for us. His heart is so full of revelation to us, but we have to keep ourselves open to his word to allow it to get into our heart. Nothing runs more contrary to the will of the king than for his majesty, his majesty to be ignored because our minds have grown lazy and our hearts have settled for the phantom of a king made in our own imagination. We've determined just based off the few scriptures we know, based off the few things we know about scripture. John 3.16 is a great scripture verse, but if that's all you know about the Bible and about God, you're missing out on a whole lot of truth. But if we're limited by our own imagination, this is treasonous. We're missing out. We're, we're letting God be limited to our own imagination our own limited knowledge of who he is. To render God the great I am into our own image is nothing less than forgetting God altogether, making it a convenient factor in our life, making God fit a little convenient corner of how he can fit in our life and how he shouldn't fit in our life. Ignoring the sovereignty of God. Verse 11, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. With joy. Is your life resilient and patient? Because guess what? 
Our king is sovereign. I know I've said it. I'm going to say it again. Our king is sovereign, but that doesn't mean life is just going to go great all the time. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have any trouble. It doesn't mean we're not going to have trials. It's not, it doesn't mean we're not going to have any sickness. So Paul is saying, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Is your heart full of joyful gratitude no matter what is going on? If you are indifferent to God, then his happiness is at the expense of your happiness. But if you are in love with God, his happiness is your happiness. I want his happiness to be my happiness. But again, how do you know that? How do you know that living your life, you're submitting to his kingship in your life by going to his word and allowing his word to enter your mind and then get to your heart? Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. It is God who qualifies us, not our own works. It's important to understand that. But as Paul is saying, there, are, there is an obligation on our part. We don't qualify ourselves. God does. But we have to put ourselves in position for God to be able to qualify us. Amen? He has, in verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And this word conveyed, its special significance, when one empire conquered another, the custom was to take the population of the conquered and defeated empire and transfer it completely to the conqueror's land. In its sense, Paul is saying we have been conveyed into God's kingdom, out of this world, taken out, and conveyed into God's kingdom so that God is our king and ruler. Amen? Everything we have and everything we are now belongs to him. We have been conveyed into his kingdom. In verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Redemption, it's a legal ransom. The price for our release was paid by the blood of Jesus. The word forgiveness means to be a sending away. Our sin and guilt is sent away because what Jesus did on the cross for us. Amen. So this in summary here, in summary of what we just read, there are a few things you want to look at in your life. Do you have knowledge of his will? Are your hands bearing godly fruit? Is your mind growing in that knowledge of God? Is your life resilient and patient? Is your heart full of joy and gratitude? If so, you're conveyed into the kingdom of God. You're under God's rulership. You're under God's kingship. You're submitting yourself to God's kingship. In conclusion here, we go back to Israel. Israel did not submit to God's kingship. I don't think in their whole entirety, even to when they demanded a king, even to that point, if you go back in history, the nation of Israel altogether were 
always just stubborn and rebellious and fighting against God. They never submitted to God's kingship. In turn, God gave them what they wished for. As the saying goes, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. Their rejection of God as their king presented a whole set of new problems. A human king would require a lot. And Samuel went through that. He says, well, you ready for this, guys? Well, here it goes. Um, I'm going I'm to tell, tell it as it is here. Um, the king, he's going to take your sons and make them serve as soldiers. They're going to go in front of the king's chariot so the king doesn't die, but your sons will. They'll defend the king. Oh, and that's not it. The king's going to take even more of your sons and make them plow his ground and reap his harvest. Oh, I'm not done yet. Uh, More sons to make weapons for war. Oh, and not just your sons, your daughters. They'll be used for perfumers and cooks and bakers and etc. The king is going to take, 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 take. He would take the best of their fields and vineyards as his own. He would take a tenth of their produce. He would take a tenth of their cattle. And they would eventually just be slaves to his rule. The king could then just demand whatever, whenever. Because when God was a sovereign king, he could do whatever he wanted, whenever he pleased, however But he was just a loving God. He had everything under control. Now, when you get a human king, you add that human element, and who knows where you're going to go. They would be slaves to his rule, and eventually they would cry out for relief. But they got what they wished for. And if you look at the history of Israel from that point on, Saul is anointed king. He's king for 40 years, David for 40 years, Solomon for 40 years, and then the kingdom is divided. Over a thousand years before that of God growing his people as a nation, and then they go, we want a king other than God. God said, all right, there you go. And it was just a gradual, then rapid decline from there. The same is true for us. If we reject, reject God's reign in our life, the things of this world will steal away what God has blessed us with. For the Bible says in Proverbs fourteen twelve, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. we may decide that we don't want God in charge of our life. We don't want him in every aspect of our life. And that might seem right. And you might be able to come up with reasons why you think that's right. But the Bible says that way that you think is right, either to a man, a woman, a child, a person, that way will eventually lead to death. On our own, without submitting to God's kingship, We don't know what's best for us because we're not sovereign. But when we submit to the sovereign king, we let him take control of our life. 
to use us as he will. I give myself away so you, my king, can use me. Amen. So what does God, so what does making God as your king mean? It means that you have to, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. A hundred percent of who you are. It's not a half-hearted duty. You could see that in Israel. They were half-hearted in everything. A hundred percent. When we serve God, we will reap the many blessings and benefits for doing so. Psalms 103, 1 through 5 tells us, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is, in, that is, in, that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. There's benefits to submitting your life to God's kingship. What are these benefits? Well, he's going to forgive all your iniquities. He's going to heal all your diseases. So it means that you might get sick, but he can heal you. Who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your renewth your youth is renewed like the eagles. The eagles. Let's all stand today. The article I read earlier today, when we're left to our own devices to determine on our own what the purpose is for our life without turning to God, we get into situations like that where We've done everything we know to do. We've been successful. We've accomplished things in life. But in the end, what is there? But if you allow God to use you, allow God to rule and reign in your life, he will take what he's given you already, whether it's a lot or little, and put you in position of where you will have ultimate satisfaction when you're pleasing him. He knows you more than you know yourself. But until you submit to his kingship, that is not made evident in your life. Allow God to rule and reign in your life. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my reign, me being king in your life is easy, and my burden is light. Let's all gather in the front here today.